In the words of the great Phil Collins, what ho, she cried as she waved her wooden leg aloft and filled the air with potato chips. That's life without a wife, 10 kids, and a rugby team. Let us go ever upward in ever diminishing circles until we disappear within the vortex of our own apex, showering feathers and flowers on our baffled pursuers. On behalf of the Collins family, welcome and thank you for joining us as we remember and celebrate the life of the great Phil Collins which is how he referred to himself within his own family, by the way. <laughs> Some of you knew Phil as your professor. Perhaps he was your pastor or colleague. For others, he was a close friend, an extended family member, or confidant. Perhaps you knew him as a mentor, leader, or director. To me, he was simply chief. I first met Chief nearly 40 years ago when he was cutting the lawn on a Friday night and he was dressed in his traditional short-sleeved dress shirt, dark slacks, and dress shoes. I don't think he ever owned a pair of jeans and he would admit this, his legs were too blindingly white to wear shorts. I don't know why I started calling him chief early on, but he seemed to relish his role as chief of the Collins clan. Reverend Dr. Philip Thirteen Collins was, among many other things, a husband, a father, a grandfather, and great-grandfather, and as mentioned, a minister, church leader, professor, university academic, and friend to many. Yet even with all his roles and achievements, Phil's most redeeming quality that virtually everyone loved was his unique sense of humor. You may have noticed I referenced the number 13 as part of his name. That's because Phil Collins was never given a middle name. Now it's an oversight that he dealt with in the way he dealt with most things with his quirky, often puzzling sense of humor. It's quirky to give oneself a middle name, more so a middle number. It's puzzling because he never felt the need to explain it. I don't mean to suggest he was enigmatic. That was just him. There was nothing contrived about how he presented himself to anyone. Silence was not something he appreciated, at least not his own silence. He often filled that void with his own voice, sensical or non. What ho, she cried, that's life without a wife. Again, no explanation was ever offered as to the wisdom that must have been embedded in these words. He was quick with a comment or quip, even when he wasn't trying to be funny. Many years ago, the entire Collins family attended a small wedding at Minaru Chapel in Richmond. And Phil was officiating. And to close the ceremony, he asked everyone to recite the Lord's Prayer in unison. The problem was only the Collins family knew the Lord's Prayer. 
So Phil would say a line, and then the guests would follow. So our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then he suddenly stopped at the line, forgive us our trespasses. He then reverted to his traditional benediction and said, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his glorious presence with great joy, amen. Well, of course, nobody could follow that. But neither could the guests figure out why the entire Collins clan in the front row was doubled over in laughter. The irony was not lost on us of the pastor forgetting the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> Phil was a prolific reader, and I'm not speaking about literary consumption in this instance. I mean, he read any text that entered his field of vision out loud. Traffic signs, posters, TV commercials, magazine covers. In his latter years, he even started to read punctuation out loud. <laughs> but more than anything, Phil loved being a grampy. He said many times, if I knew grandfathering would be so much fun, I would have done that first. He always found time to attend school performances, concerts, recitals, soccer matches, graduations, and more, usually with a film camera in his possession. He was present in the lives of his grandkids, and they adored him. He spent time with them individually and all together. He shared photos, his love for books, art, stationery, office supplies, silly poems and scary stories. He rocked, cuddled, walked, pushed swings, kicked and tossed balls, played games, and he loved every one of his grandchildren unconditionally. And he regaled the generations with the possibly inappropriate story of the famine sandwiches. The grandchildren would laugh at the sound of Grampy's introduction while the six of us as parents would roll our eyes and leave the room. I hate famine sandwiches, he would begin, as he had for literally decades. If you don't already know, the punchline is, don't bring my mother into it, I make my own famine sandwiches. But you see, for Phil, it wasn't about the punchline. It was about the quality of the process of getting to it. And sometimes it took a long, long time. And it was his metaphor for life. As his favorite son-in-law, I learned many things from this wonderful man, including some of the spiritual fruits the Bible teaches us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so much more. Whenever I walked into the Collins home, Chief would look at me and say, there he is in all his fulsome pulchritude. I never knew what it meant, but I always took it as a compliment. The one thing that I always tried to emulate and still do today, and I admired deeply, is Chief made everyone he spoke to feel like they mattered. He never looked past you to find another conversation or perhaps a person that might have been more interesting. The day before he died, I was able to tell him that I loved him. That I appreciated his accepting me into the Collins family with open arms.
I thanked him for raising such an amazing young woman, I still consider her young, and giving me permission to marry her. I thanked him for his generosity and his gentle spirit. I'm not sure if he heard me, but I know he opened his eyes a couple of times when I called him chief. For me, there will never be another chief, and I'll miss him dearly for the rest of my life. Today, though, is about celebrating a life well-lived and the memory of a great man, the great Phil Collins, who left a legacy that will live on in his kids, his grandkids, his great-grandkids, and in future generations. For now, Phil leaves a giant hole in our hearts until we meet again in heaven. This was Grampy's favorite hymn. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the deep Exchange it.
I'm Rick Berry. I've known Phil all my life. I'm here to give words of comfort. You may have noticed, uh, this may not be the Phil Collins you were expecting if you read an obituary. Um, this is not the rock star. But he was, he was. And after listening to Walt, I'm, I was thinking, you know, you, you've had a lot of years to be mentored by Phil. And as with Steve and Debbie and Doug and your spouses, you've seen, and Lois, you've seen and all kinds of things uh, in Phil's life. Maybe you were able to make sense, and I think that's really cool. I, uh, I'm glad. I remember the, my earliest memory of Uncle Phil. In Grand Falls, I think Phil would have been, I was just working it out, I think he would have been 32 years old, a few years younger than me now. And my brother Paul wouldn't go to sleep in Grand Falls, and so Phil came into the room and let his false teeth fall out <laughs> and said, I'm going to get you if you don't go to sleep. <laughs> Paul still remembers that. <laughs> And I think Phil's humor improved over the years uh, considerably. Um, there was a, there are many stories, uh, but I remember visiting in the late, oh, mid-70s uh, from March break from BLTS, and we, a whole bunch of us from BL, went out to uh, Vancouver, and we stayed with the Collins, and uh, I remember having conversations with Phil, and he would do, say these jokes, the same ones that I remembered from when I was a kid, but he would say them. And by the way, he was the first to laugh at those jokes, too. I don't, do you, did you notice that? Always. Well, well, well. It's a deep subject. And then he'd laugh. And uh, there was a time when I, I think it was years later, I came out for a visit with my new wife, and 
I guess it was quite a ways uh, into our marriage because uh, we had become vineyard. And uh, at the time, uh, uh, Phil uh, came up to me with all his uh, humor and lightheartedness and jokes. And then he asked me, so what is it the Baptists don't have that the vineyard has? And he was at once uh, acutely uh, focused on something that was on his mind. And because I trusted him, I could talk to him. And uh, it was an amazing, Phil had an amazing capacity to blend humor, to disarm, and then to be poignant and to the point. Poignant means to the point. And that was something valuable. And then hearing you all just describe uh, maybe how to make sense of some of that. Um, Uncle Phil, he, he didn't mind what you thought. <laughs> and, and what a valuable thing to live life with that kind of freedom and confidence as well. My dad, who would love to be here, Bob Berry, uh, he's going to FaceTime a little later. Um, he even th thanked the Lord today for iPhones. I heard him say that, didn't you? You were there. Um, so he'll be able to communicate by iPhone later. But he wrote something that he wants me to, to speak to you. And, and my words to you right now, and the words of my father, are words of great appreciation for a man who impacted us. Even though you guys left the East Coast in, what, 69, was it? A long time ago. A lifetime living on the West Coast. And what a treasure it is every time we would reconnect with your family and Uncle Phil. My dad wants to say something. Well, I have verbally expressed my sympathy to Steve, Doug, and Deb. I also want to publicly express my sympathy to all of you here today and to those who could not be here. I'm deeply, deeply grateful to God for Phil Collins, whom I regard as one of our great leaders. <laughs> my memory of the first time I met Phil goes back, to, goes back 67 years to a winter day just before Christmas in 1952. Lois and Phil were recently engaged, and Lois wanted to introduce him to our parents and family. So they came to the Berry home in a small community not far from Moncton. I was also engaged to Grace Lambert, and I brought her home to meet my family as well. All nine of the children of Harry and Bernice were home for Christmas, and I don't know how we all found places to sleep, three to a bed for some, but it was a very special family Christmas, and those memories are forever etched in my memory. I've often marveled at how these two, Phil and Grace, my mom, instantly connected with my parents and family, and it was a mutual connection. And I'm interested, there's something he didn't write, but I think that was when you played hockey and that Christmas, and you, Al said you put Phil in goal, and all the boys took shots with the puck at him in net, and he was a good sport. That was, <clears throat> that was quite a weekend. 
Phil and I became brothers-in-law shortly after that Christmas experience, but Phil was more than a brother-in-law to me. We became very close friends, and providentially, we both began ministry in churches in the same association in northern New Brunswick. We spent a lot of time working together in the association in a number of ways, especially in frequent events among the youth, including uh, Camp Shiktahak Youth Camp. That association uh, continued when we were both pastors in the city of St. John, and once again we worked together with the youth association in the particular camp at Talakadik. Because of that long-term association, it was inevitable that our families would also become very close and our kids were all about the same age. Family events and other occasions our families often brought us together and the connection among their cousins is still very special. Then Phil and Lois moved to British Columbia where Phil served as area minister, then to Cary Hall, uh, Cary Theological Seminary as professor and later as principal. Grace and I had moved to Toronto to work with the, our overseas mission board and once again we had a close connection since Cary had a training ministry in Kenya among people with whom we were partnering with as well. There are also um, many events and experiences that our families have shared together, but I want to share one in particular. It was the opening Sunday for youth camp at Camp Talakadik in 1970, where Phil and I and others were leaders. Phil led the 7 p.m. Vesper service, which was followed by a time of sharing, singing, and praying we deeply experienced the presence of the Lord on that opening day of the youth camp, and the stories associated with that night are many. It was around midnight when we all went to bed, but we sensed the presence of God working very profoundly and powerfully all weekend. And that is only one story about the times in which God gave us the privilege to serve in ministry together. So thank you, Lord, for Phil Collins. Let's bow our heads right now as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for having known and been impacted and been shaped by your presence through Phil Collins. We thank you, Lord, for the memories and the things we've learned the experiences shared together with him. And Father, we ask your presence and your sustaining care for Phil's family right now, for friends and colleagues who have experienced so much. And though the grief is there and the loss is felt keenly, we thank you and celebrate his life. For this, we Lay everything else before you, Father, that our commemoration would be joyful for Phil, Phil Collins is with you. And he has received his reward and that legacy continues in the life of his family and friends. Your presence. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.
That's why Spencer, Spencer Meister, we're trying to figure out how you describe the son-in-law of a granddaughter is called what? Just that, I think. Okay, I think good. you got it. All right, yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> so he's reading the script. Go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so I have the privilege of, of reading some of Phil's favorite scripture uh, as a gathered body today. Uh, the first is from Philippians 1. It says this, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And another from Job 19 that says this, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his, hand, his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will not see, and not another. My heart yearns within me. This is the word of the Lord. I'll invite you to stand as we're going to sing How Great Thou Art together. Consider all the world I 
You may be seated. Hi, I'm Kevin Berry, and uh, like Rick, I have the honor of being one of Phil's nephews. And it is a great honor because there's almost 50 nieces and nephews that Phil and Lois had, and that's not counting the, the greats and the great greats. Um, what's green and fuzzy, and if it fell out of a tree, could kill you? A pool table. That's one of the last jokes I told Uncle Phil. He said, that would hurt. <laughs> Phil was multifaceted. And I, I, hearing the stories about Phil, I think of the old story, I think you all know it, about the four blind men that are feeling an elephant. And each one of them has a very, uh, or a somewhat different experience as to what that elephant is, what it is that they're experiencing. And I think Phil was like that. We all experienced you know, there was strength and wisdom and compassion. And I think we all felt a lot of the ears in the trunk, the funny parts too. I know I got a lot of those. And, because uh, Phil was funny. Uh, and I think you'd be enormously pleased to know that I was standing here today comparing him to an elephant. <laughs> um, Phil was everyone's favorite uncle. I think even if he wasn't your uncle, he had to be your favorite uncle. He was just that kind of guy. Uh, he made a big impression on me in 1986 at Debbie's wedding and uh, when he, he agreed to wear a tux and give the, uh, the speech of the father of the bride only if he could wear a bow tie that lit up and flashed. And so Debbie gave him one and he wore it. And it was epic, Phil. And uh, I pay homage to Phil today with this. The next morning, there was a big Barry Collins family breakfast, and uh, you could always find Phil at a function because all you had to do was look for where the kids were, and that's where Phil would usually be. And the next morning at this big family breakfast, uh, there we were at the teenager table, and Phil was with us, and we taught Phil how to hang a spoon. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen Phil hang a spoon from his nose or his forehead or his temple, but this is where he learned it, right here. Um, I made the very wise decision. I, I grew up on a different coast. I grew up on the East Coast, and uh, while well, well, Phil, the Collins family, was here, um, but I made the wise decision to go to university here, and Phil and Lois just welcomed me into their home, and every birthday, anniversary, every time there was a family function, I was invited, and they made me one of their family, and I know I'm not the only one in this room here today that has experienced being welcomed into the Collins family. Uh, over the years, uh, I loved Phil's jokes, and he knew it, and over the years, we would just try to one-up each other. Every time we saw each other, we would have new material for each other and uh, we saved it for each other. And uh, one year, we, one Thanksgiving, we took a drive from uh, Whistler to Pemberton, and Phil and Aunt Lois and me were in the back seat of the car. Do you remember what I'm talking about? And uh, Phil and I, it was two hours, and Phil and I had a marathon, and we traded jokes for two hours straight, without a break, without a repeat, and Aunt Lois slept through the whole thing. <laughs> 
And I only ever heard Aunt Lois laugh once at one of Uncle Phil's jokes, and it was at a family function, and Debbie said, Mom, you never laugh at Dad's jokes. And Aunt Lois said, Oh, I wasn't laughing at the joke. I was laughing because I was so surprised he told the joke I'd never heard before. <laughs> but uh, I also got to experience Uncle Phil's serious side, and uh, uh, as Rick said about, uh, or uh, Walt said about the books and his voracious reading, uh, I, I got a lot of the history and archaeology books that Uncle Phil would have and would have read and he'd pass them on to me and he'd be very specific about what he liked or didn't like about them and then he'd question them, me on them later. And we had debates and arguments. Um, I didn't, uh, we didn't always agree on matters of faith and, and like Rick said, we could have these incredible discussions and have very opposing points of view and there was this respect and openness to a well-formed argument and I always felt respected and at the end of it, it was, he was back to being Uncle Phil again. Uh, the last time I saw Uncle Phil was, was just over a year ago and uh, I went up to his room on the third floor and uh, he was... He was laying on his bed facing the wall and I knocked on the side of the door and he turned over and sat up and his, his hair was all messed up and his face just lit up and he said, I know you. And he said, he said, I don't know your name but I know who you are. And then he motioned me closer and motioned me to bend down and uh, he said, can you bust me out of here? Well, Uncle Phil, you've escaped. What ho, she cried. Uh, but you'll always be remembered every time we hear a corny joke told well, and we can't stop ourselves from laughing at it. And you'll be remembered when we experience the, the wit and the wisdom and the compassion that we see in your, your kids and in your grandkids, and, and it's there in spades. Uh, let us go ever upwards in ever-diminishing circles until we disappear within the vortex of our own apex, showering flowers and feathers on our baffled pursuers. well for me. I can see the paper and I can't see any of you. <laughs> Makes it easier. I am from a very um, lucky group of people who can say what great in-laws she has. I uh, truly felt welcomed by Phil and Lois um, since the very first days that I met them. So trying to think of a, a brief memory to share with all of you is very difficult because there are so many that I could share. Um, that was one of the things about Phil and Lois together. They, they made memories. They did things with you. They invited you to dinner. They invited you to do different things with them to create memories. And I have those to um, look back on and remember. So I had to pick one, and this is the one that uh, really stands out for me because it was a really um, a real teaching moment for me. Um, 
The, this memory comes from when the first time that Phil and Lois invited us to their house for dinner. Um, my parents and my grandma were in town, and so we were all invited to, to come and have dinner with them. I was wondering how this would turn out. Would they get along? Would they like one another? Um, I didn't know how that was going to go, but it turned out that um, Phil and Lois and my parents and my grandma knew more people in common in church circles than Doug and I did, and so we were left out of the conversation while they had a great time <laughs> together. <laughs> but when, I, when we first came to the door, um, I introduced uh, Phil to my mom and my dad and then my grandma, and he got down on bended knee and reached out and grabbed her hands and said, um, it is a great honor to meet such a great lady. And when he said that, I was kind of surprised, and I wasn't sure if he was joking, because as you've heard, he jokes a lot, and I didn't know what was up with that. But later on in the evening, I sort of asked him about it, and he said to me, don't you know who your, who your grandmother is? And I was really shocked by that, and it, but it stirred me, um, spurred me on to go and do a little bit of research. Before I left, he said, he said to me, I should just read what I've written here. <laughs> he said, um, let me go back to this. He said, don't you know who your great-grandfather was? While I knew I was the great-granddaughter of an Anglican bishop, I did not know how far-reaching his ministry had been. In Phil's words, he was the Billy Graham of India. I still don't know how he figured all of that out, but, but it was at this point that I began to pay a little more attention to my own family history and especially to my faith heritage. I have Dad, Phil, to thank for opening my eyes to a family who built orphanages and schools, who provided health care and midwifery to remote villages, and more. He taught me faith and compassion, and those are his family's legacy. And thanks to Phil, we can continue to pass this on. My name is Rob Ogilvie, and I have the privilege of serving as the Executive Minister for the Canadian Baptists of Western Canada, which would be better known by many in this room as the Baptist Union of Western Canada. And so I will use that name for the rest of my talk, probably. It'll be helpful that way for some of you that are here. It's an incredible privilege to be able to speak, and thank you, Debbie, and to the rest of the family for allowing me this opportunity um, as someone who is not family, uh, but someone who did know Phil a little bit. And I know that there are many of you in this room who knew Phil far greater than I did as well. And so I'm just grateful for the chance to be able to speak. In 1992, Phil Collins hired my wife Bonnie and I as the residential deans for Cary Hall. Cary Hall Residence, Cary Theological College where Sir Phil had served for eight years as the principal of Cary. When he hired us, it was actually, we were invited to have lunch in Calgary 
because Phil and some of the others from the Baptist Union Board were meeting there for meetings. And uh, we were invited to come and to have lunch with him. And it turned out that that ended up being our job interview, which we didn't really know that that was happening, but that's what it was. Turned out 15 couples applied for the position of residential deans at that point in time, a highly sought after position. And uh, it also turned out that that lunch was the only quote interview that was had by anybody for the position at that point in time. And Phil, or a couple of weeks later, we were informed by some of Phil's other staff that we had received the position. We were living in Calgary at that time, so a few short months later, we were in Vancouver. And it was funny how we found out quite quickly from some of the staff there that uh, there were these other people who had applied. And several of the staff actually thought some of those other people probably should have gotten the job at that point in time as well. And I quickly found out something about Phil Collins at that point. He was a decisive man, and he really didn't worry too much about what everybody else thought about his decisions necessarily. He went ahead and he made the decisions and he lived with them. And I must admit, I'm very thankful for the way that he made that decision as it's connected us in so many ways. Phil was a great teacher, an educator, a mentor to many. I don't know if some of you, as I did, read responses on social media uh, that many family members received regarding Phil and you hear the stories of the many lives that he impacted from many of those students that went through his time when he was teaching. One of the courses I remember taking with Phil was something called Foundations for Pastoral Ministry. And Foundations for Pastoral Ministry was a course that taught the practical realities of what it meant to be a pastor. And as Phil taught it, he explained how you did things like lead a funeral or perform a wedding or how to baptize somebody without dropping them or losing them in the tank or in the river or in the ocean, wherever that might be. Phil played a huge role as a denominational leader for the Baptist Union of Western Canada. Dr. Jerry Fisher, who is here this afternoon, a former executive minister of the Baptist Union, said that Phil was one of the finest and most capable people I ever worked with on staff. And then Jerry shared another story with me that was a rather humorous one that I appreciated. Phil served as the BC area minister for nine years. I later served as the BC area minister for nine years. And the story goes is that when Phil was the BC area minister, there was one particular church he was invited to over that span of nine years to preach at, which he did three different times. And the interesting thing was is that it turned out he preached the same sermon every time that he was at that church. When Jerry told me of that story, I thought, oh man, I've lived that world. That was one of my greatest fears when I was the area minister, that I might actually do that. And I at least had a computer I could go back and see what I had preached somewhere else. I'm guessing that maybe this was a little bit before that time. You have heard it said many times and in many ways that Phil had a great sense of humor. That wasn't just at home. There is a classic Phil Collins story of Baptist folklore that goes something like this. I tried to fact check it just to make sure that I had it right. I think we've got it right. One day, Dr. Harry Renfrey, who was the executive minister of the, then the Baptist Union of Western Canada, phoned Kerry Hall. 
And Phil is the one who happened to answer the phone on that day. And Phil answered the, home this, the phone this way by saying this, Carrie Hall, who in the hall do you want? <laughs> Deb knew that was coming. She, she's heard this story. She knew. And Harry Renfrey said, well, who is this? And Phil Collins in turn said, well, who is this? And Harry Renfrey said, well, I'm Harry Renfrey. I'm the executive minister of the Baptist Union of Western Canada. And then he said, and who is this? And Phil said to him, you don't know who it is? And he said, no. And Phil quickly hung up the phone. <laughs> that is Baptist folklore, folks. That one sticks and lasts forever. There's two things I specifically remember about Phil in his teaching for myself. One was he often used the phrase paradigm shift. We're going through a paradigm shift, and he was referring to the church so often, and this shift as to how it had to happen and how the church had to change with culture and society but not losing its values. And he often talked about the paradigm shift that we were in the midst of. And the second thing that came to mind for me as I was remembering Phil was a passage of scripture that I remember him sharing and talking about that is one of those that most of us probably would just glance by and we wouldn't give it a whole lot of attention. It goes back into 1 Chronicles and it's a story of David's amassing an army basically to um, take on Saul. And there's lists and lists of names of people who are becoming a part of David's army. But at one point, in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, a verse reads this way. It says, Then from Isaacer, there were men who understood the times, and they knew what Israel should do. And I remembered Phil talking on that particular verse. He said, you know, think of those words. These were men who knew their times. They understood their times. And they knew that it was what it was that they should do. Phil Collins understood the times in which he lived. And he knew what needed to be done for the church to be faithful to the calling that God had placed on him. And he shared that knowledge with so many people helping to equip the next generation of leadership for the church. It was a privilege to have been hired by Phil. It was a privilege to have been a student and to be mentored by Phil. And it's a privilege to try to carry on with some of the work that he helped to lay the groundwork for. Lois and each member of the entire Collins family. Thank you for sharing your husband. Thank you for sharing your dad, your grandpa, your uncle. I know in sharing him with all of us, that took away from you at the same time. But in you sharing him with us, we are better people for it. May the peace of the Lord be with you all.
I'll invite you to stand again as we sing another song together. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my soul. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I'll stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on the Sorry, I had to make a pit stop on my way up here. Missing the water this morning. 
It's not this morning, it's this afternoon. I'm Deb, and I am Phil's daughter. And I just want to thank you all for standing with us, our family, today as we celebrate the life of our father, Phil Collins. Each of you bear witness to who our dad was, whether you knew him well or not. It's good to have you here with us today. His was a life, apparently, that was noticed. And we're doing our very best to tell the story of Phil Collins in all of his fulsome pulchritude. He said that word wrong all the time. It was, he said pulchritude. We discovered this week it's pulchritude. <laughs> I had no idea my dad was a big deal. It wasn't until I was well into raising a family, married with three kids, that I began to realize the breadth and the width of the impact my dad had in this world. And when, Phil, Phil, when people would find out who my dad was, and it's been mentioned already, invariably, there were two responses. It was, you're Phil Collins's daughter? I love your dad. He is the best drummer in the world. His music is awesome. And when I would correct them, the other response would be, Phil helped me so much. He believed in me when nobody else would. He was such a mentor to me. And I would hear comments like that about him all the time. As an aside, the two Phil Collinses do have one thing in common, Genesis. The name of the band and the first book of the Bible. But the fact that I didn't realize that my dad was a big deal is actually a testament to him. Because when he was home, he was dad. Yes, mowing the lawn in his dress pants, wearing bow ties that lit up, saying all sorts of things that were hugely embarrassing, rolling my eyes like, please, dad, don't talk anymore. I'm sure my kids feel the same half the time. But he was not about pomp and circumstance. He was just, as he put it, a regular Joe. He grew up on the streets on the rough side of Toronto, and somehow he found Jesus. Thankfully, and for him, everything changed. His life mission was set before him, and he never lost focus. He just went about doing what he was called to do unapologetically. So today, in the telling of Phil's story, I stand before you with the task of sharing what my dad believed. And in this, I, it is my hope that you will find the same hope that my dad lived for. As Spencer read earlier, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. To me, this verse pretty much sums up my dad's life. Because every person born moves through life being shaped by their circumstances, the choices they make in life, people they encounter. And at the end of it all, we have a story to tell for better or for worse. And with my dad, his life is the picture of someone who allowed the love of Jesus to shape him. You see, my dad's life was not the picture of perfection. 
it didn't start off very well for him. His father was an alcoholic who got angry and was difficult to live with. And our dad spent a lot of time on the streets getting in all sorts of trouble. But somehow he made it to a Billy Graham crusade, and in his late teens he gave his life to the Lord. And he completely turned his life around, went off to Bible college, met my mom, and they married a few years later. My brothers, Steve and Doug, were born in Ontario, in Toronto and London, and then they moved to the Maritimes, and that's when I was born. When my dad met my mom in college, he had no idea what God had in store for him through, the, through family. Again, God was at work behind the scenes. One of the things my dad would say is that behind every successful man is a surprised mother-in-law. Well, my grandmother was truly surprised at my father's achievements. And as you've heard about my mom's brother, joining her family was quite an achievement because my dad grew up with four sisters, and his dad would call him the fifth girl. But then he married a mom, or my mom, who had one sister and seven brothers. And those seven brothers were big and they were talented. And they were a little intimidating, and some of them were very athletic, as we have heard. But he held his own with them, and they embraced him as their brother. And they welcomed him into their family. And over the course of his lifetime, he was not, not only able to do life with his in-laws, but as you've heard, served in ministry with them at many levels. He knew God had his hand on him. So, I watched my dad pastor, sometimes several churches at a time. He was well-loved in all of them. He went back to school in Boston for a time while still pastoring in a small church in Maine. And then we moved back to the Maritimes for a few years before he was called out here to British Columbia to become the area minister for the Baptist Union of Western Canada. And after nine years of serving in that capacity, he became the professor and then principal at Cary Theological College, and he stayed there until retirement. He was all about raising up pastors and resourcing the local church. He believed in the local church. So throughout my life, I saw my dad serve the Lord with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and all his strength, and he never strayed from his calling. And I believe that there were a couple moments when he was in personal crisis where he began to second-guess, maybe. But he stayed strong. And he surrounded himself with other men who were strong Christian leaders, pastors, and teachers. And they carried one another. Our dad was not perfect. But he was good. And he was faithful. He had some things he had to work out in his life, and he had to overcome. But through what he believed was the grace of God, he broke the cycle of abuse in his family. And over the course of his life, he evolved, he changed, and he grew. And some of the things that he taught us as children about what it means to be a Christian, he actually let go of as the years went on, and he grew more deeply in his understanding of the gospel. I remember washing my car one Sunday afternoon after church, and he came home and said, I'm glad to see you're worshiping your God on Sunday. <laughs> to which I said, thank you, I'm doing a good job. 
But he, he let go of things and he relaxed and he used humor to disarm and get his point across. He worked hard to balance ministry and family, and there were certain stages of his vocational life that took him away from home a lot. And he said later in life, if he could go back and do that again, he would make some changes. That takes a strong, confident man to say that. But that's life, isn't it? Those of us who are parents, don't we wish we can go back and make a few changes? But we grow and we change and we develop wisdom that can only come with life experience. But through it all, Dad believed God was faithful to him and he did his faith best to be faithful to God and his family. In fact, in two days, my parents would have been celebrating their 66th wedding anniversary, even though neither of them are aware that it will be their anniversary. But the interesting thing with them, in these latter years, with all the things and all the people they can no longer re could no longer remember, they knew each other, even when they didn't know each other's names. Words had run out, but their affection for one another was more evident than ever. And it was good to watch. A good work had begun in my dad's late teens, and it was carried on in him throughout his entire life as he made the decision to follow Jesus no matter what. And now it is complete. His reality today is he is finally with the one whom he served so faithfully. Dad also lived out Philippians 1 verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. If I could describe my dad in one sentence, that is it. He conducted himself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he was silly and hilarious doing so. But in order to give you a full picture of what my dad believed, I need to talk a little bit about the last decade of his life and about suffering. There is this great saying that every preacher has only one or two sermons in them, meaning that whatever topic or scripture passage they, they preach on, there are one or two recurring themes that just keep making their way into every sermon they preach. Usually these themes are something that has struck a chord so deeply in the person or it was one thing about Jesus that so dramatically transformed their lives they cannot stop talking about, and it comes out in every sermon. When it comes to our dad, our family had a long-standing joke about how the only sermon my dad ever preached was on Job. Now, the story of Job in the Old Testament was all about suffering. Where is God in the suffering? And so in the first few years when we were living out here, we would follow my dad to various churches where he was guest preaching at it, and Rob mentioned it. We kept, that one church that only heard a sermon three times, I don't know how many times we heard the, the sermon on Job preached. And his response was the same thing when I asked him, do you not have anything else in your repertoire? And he said, when I see some change, I'll change the topic. Now, I brought something along. This is his sermon on Job, and he started writing the, 
dates and the, chur the churches he spoke at so he wouldn't make those mistakes anymore. I, I know it wasn't true. He did change up his sermon at times. But we as a family endured our suffering silently as we heard that same sermon over and over again. So as I was preparing to speak today and wondering where to begin, the old familiar scripture passage of Psalm 23 came to mind. Psalm 23 came to mind. And while I, being the eternal optimist that I am, always focus on the first few verses and the last of that, that passage, and it was all invitational about Jesus inviting us to rest. But this time I felt the Lord draw me toward the verse I usually skimmed over. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And I suddenly realized that my dad had been walking through the valley of the shadow of death for the last decade of his life. During these years, I believe he endured his own suffering. When he was first diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, he had to face the reality that his mind was so sharp which was so sharp, would slowly but surely leave him. He didn't talk about it very much. If he was frightened, he didn't let on. Those of us, though, on the outside watching found it painful to see him slowly disappear as his mind began to fail him. And in the early years of his Alzheimer's, he may have not remembered your name, but he would remember what you did for a living, the pastor, the police officer, the pilot. He couldn't remember what he had done the day before or even five minutes earlier. We had several conversations over and over again. But if you asked him a theological question or a question about the church, he was there. He came to life. In fact, many, uh, he was a few years into the disease, and we had been part of a church plant, and it was beginning to decline, and it was becoming discouraging. And I sat down with him, and I went, Dad, what do we do with the church? How can we get the church to grow? And he just looked me straight in the eye and went, quit inviting people to church. Invite them to Jesus. The church will work itself out. And I have held on to that for all these years. At one point in the journey when I asked him a question, he responded to me, I used to know the answer to that, but now maybe you should ask someone else because I don't know anymore. And even there, he had wisdom. While he was still speaking, he often shared how awful it was to live like this. This was never what he envisioned his final years on li of life to be. And slowly but surely, he turned inside himself. And as he went from vibrant and brilliant and hilarious, he moved to vacant and silent. Fun fact, though, his sense of humor was the last thing to go. In fact, one month ago, I was visiting him and my mom, and he hadn't spoken for about five months. 
and the caregivers were getting him ready for the day, shaving him, and my mom and I were sitting there, and my mom suddenly panicked that she couldn't find her makeup, and she needed to find her makeup. And I said, Mom, you don't need makeup. You're beautiful without it. You do not need your makeup. And suddenly, clear as a bell, my dad goes, yes, she does. <laughs> and I look over and go, Dad, you've not spoken for five months. Do you think you could say something nice to your wife? And he got a smile on his face. He knew he was funny. He knew exactly what he was saying. So as I was mulling over this message and reminiscing about my dad, I was reminded about the book of Job and his favorite sermon. And I just happened to have his sermon files in our garage, and I went through and I dug out his sermon on Job. And it seems this first writing of his sermon was back in June 1965. Yeah. And written in the margin of that writing was a little note that was dated 1972. And it said... This sermon has been preached over a hundred times. Never fails to strike home. I do not know why, but praise the Lord. There were several more rewrites of that sermon going up to 1995. One of them he wrote at the top, top umpteenth rewrite. But as I read through all these re rewrites, here's what I discovered. What captivated my dad about the story of Job was that in all his suffering, Job was an unshakable witness to the glory of God. Job had lost everything. His family, his money, his material possessions. He was disease-ridden. He was grotesque. His, his wife and his best friends were convinced that Job had committed some terrible sin and was not willing to confess it, and that is why he was suffering so much. But Job had done nothing wrong. And he refused to confess because he didn't know what he'd done. So in all his pain and suffering, Job got angry with God. And he cried out. But he still trusted God. And over the span of the years that Dad studied Job and taught on suffering and continually rewrote that sermon, he came to understand that suffering changes us so that we can enter into the suffering of others. And at a time when he was experiencing his own deep personal crisis, which I have no idea what it was, it was just in a sermon, he said he searched through all the self-help books written by psychologists and pastors only to come away disappointed and unfulfilled with nothing to meet his own emotional pain. But when he turned to the book of Job, he found real consolation. And interestingly, the consolation he found reading the story was not because Job solved the problem of suffering. It didn't. There is no answer in the book of Job for the question of why do we suffer. My dad found consolation because Job tells us over and over that we are not asked to understand, but to hope against hope, to trust and to believe. And to know and trust that God is there in the silence. My dad felt North American Christians had an inadequate view of suffering. Perhaps because we have not had to endure what other parts of the world have had to go through. And he also said in every writing of his sermon that he did not have the answer to why we experience suffering, but that he had a response. 
Suffering is part of being human. We cannot get around it. And Jesus never promised an easy life, but he promised an abundant life. And how we respond to our suffering is what will make a difference in both our own lives and in the lives of others around us. And perhaps, maybe, our suffering is for the preservation of the glory of God. Job tells us that our humble and patient faithfulness in the face of our deepest disappointments and sorrow demonstrates the glory of God in human experience. When we enter into a time of trial and suffering, does our response bring glory to God? This is not to say we don't get angry or discouraged, but are we faithful? Dad's conclusion from all his study of Job was not an answer to why we experience suffering, but rather a question. Will we serve God for who he is, not for what we receive from him? And he followed that question with, in fill form, this is the great message of Job. And this is what I saw throughout my life. No matter what difficulties and trials my dad encountered, he continued to serve God. He never lost focus. He never lost his way. It occurred to me that unbeknownst to my father, the Lord, in his mercy and compassion, had begun preparing my dad for his last decade over 50 years ago through the story of Job. And when he entered into this time, the last 10 years, the dark valley of the shadow of death, he struggled. He was angry at times. He was discouraged. But I believe he never gave up faith. Dementia is a cruel disease that takes over your brain and you become a prisoner to your own mind. And Dad finally succumbed to the disease this past year and became silent. I am sure he hung on to the words of Job 19:25 to 27. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. I believe Dad's heart was yearning for the last dozen years. Yearning to see God, it was his only hope. Dad was faithful, and it was a long goodbye. And in the end, God's doing so well. Thank you, Cheryl. (laughs) There were no words, just a quiet and peaceful passing. He who began a good work in my dad carried it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And that day was May 31st, 2019, when he finally let go. And now, he stands in victory with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
Thanks, Dad, and all your fulsome polka truth. Neither of us can sing, so please stand. <laughs>
It's well with my soul, but my heart is pounding right now. Debbie told me I was to follow that song, and I said, I'll be crying. I brought my glasses for opposite reasons to my wife. I'm not actually going to read, but I can't see you now. On May 31st, I was sitting with my mother, and we were watching my father breathe his last breaths. And I wasn't really sure how mom was going to respond to this. And I looked at her. And she said one of the most profound understatements I've heard in my life. She said, I guess this is just one of those things. One of those things. <laughs> I, I wondered if maybe she wasn't clear on what was happening, but she, she was very clear and all there for me. One of those things was born on a kitchen table, so this story goes, in Toronto back in 1930. He scrapped his way through the streets, eventually ended up in a Billy Graham crusade, and he found the Lord. And then he spent a lifetime on ministry telling others what he had learned that day. And then I kind of began to consider the wisdom of my mother's words. And if you think about it, if you believe what he believes, my mother believes, and I believe, is it doesn't end at death. It's far more. If you measure his short 88 years next to all of eternity, a little death is just one of those things. So my mother, she may have lost her memory, but she hasn't lost her memory. I mean, can I say that again? <laughs> my, my mother may have lost her memory, but she hasn't lost her wisdom. And thank you for being there, Mom. So we gather here to, to grieve and to celebrate. And if we celebrate his life and grieve his death, I think we might have it backwards. I think maybe we should grieve our lives and what we suffer through and, and let's celebrate death because he's going on to better things. My father was a great man. I know that's true because so many people have told me so. And with a lot of great men, great people, they have their famous last words. Well, as my sister already alluded to, that he really didn't have any words left. Perhaps he used them all up, I don't know. But I do remember his last word to me. I asked him, how you doing, Dad? And he said, happy. I'm willing to believe that my father died a happy man. And there's many, many stories, you've already heard some, that, that back up the fact that he, he led a happy life. And I could tell you countless other stories, but really, the Lord willing, and the video guy willing, I'd like my dad to share the stories for me. Is that at all, at all possible? All right.
I lived in a very poor home. We only had uh, two chairs at the table without backs, and those were for my parents. And then the rest of us, we stood at the table. So that's what we lived with, me and my four sisters. I can remember one week going a whole week, and all we had to eat was porridge. Morning, noon, and night. You know what? I still like it. I still have it. <laughs> When I went into my teen years, just like a lot of teenagers, I got into a lot of things I shouldn't have got into, but I would take care of myself if I had to. I, I, I would have liked to have had uh, something different. And then uh, Billy Graham came to town to the Avenue Road Church where Charles, Chuck Temple was a pastor. I went forward, I accepted the Lord. He says, I give you eternal life. I was met by Sergeant Major of the Canadian Army. I don't remember his name. The first thing he did was he led me to the Lord. And then for some reason, and he himself said afterwards, he didn't, didn't know, he didn't normally ask people this question, but he said, wouldn't you like to give your life to full-time Christian service as well? And I didn't, I didn't bat an eye, I said, yes, I would. I've never looked back. Next to my conversion experience uh, was uh, meeting Lois, marrying her, and then becoming part of her family. And I, I learned a lot from her father and, and her, all her brothers and her sister. They're all the same. And they're, they're just wonderful people. I met Lois at uh, Toronto Bible College. I was in my second year. She had come there in her first year. And when I set my eyes on her, I said, that's the one. I knew I had a catch and I wasn't gonna let it go if I could help it. <laughs> I wanted somebody that was level-headed. I wanted somebody that uh, was, was not too emotional. I used to notice that, uh, that she was very concerned about people. You know, if Lois was always there listening, asking the right questions, making the person feel, feel better, th those are good qualities. I was very much in love. I guess like every young couple, we're, we're going to, we, we certainly plan to have kids, but uh, uh, they weren't, they didn't actually get born according to the plan. <laughs> well, I got three children and they're great. Steve is, uh, he's like his mother, appears to be quieter and more reserved, but he's uh, got a very good mind and he, uh, he has, his, he has his doctorate now in education, and he has a, a loving family, a good wife, and he's got two beautiful children. Doug is a, a different kind of a guy. Sometimes he can be silent, and other times he can be uh, quite loquacious. Now you look that one up in the dictionary. He was the biggest challenge at the time raising him, but I never ever thought that Doug wasn't uh, in his heart a very good boy. Comes out with the craziest things at times. He's a lot of fun. And uh, he's got th three beautiful children. And, and one of them wants to know why I'm white. Uh, I've still got to find the answer to that. There's Debbie. She is the opposite. Uh, I don't know what happens to your genes as you go along having babies. But one started off fairly quiet. The next one was sort of a combination of quiet and otherwise. And then there's Debbie, who is uh, full of beans and uh, has lots of ideas and likes to talk and she's getting to be a theologian and that's really challenging my theology. She's not challenging my theology, but I have to think more now when I respond. And they got a wonderful family too. 
My kids have been the joy of my life. God has really blessed us with three uh, wonderful children, with three wonderful spouses and uh, eight grandchildren. If I'd known how wonderful my grandchildren were going to be, I would have had them first. <laughs> They're just the joy of our hearts. Couldn't ask for anything more. It's a, a great crowning uh, closing to a long life. You start out and you trust God. And I can remember that when we were going to move from Bath in New Brunswick down to Harpswell in Maine, to another church and to study, uh, we still owed about $900 to people and businesses around. Every single one of those persons said, you've had a good ministry here and you don't owe us anything. And when I landed with the family in Harpswell in Maine, uh, we just had enough money to get started there. I went down to the college and in 30 days I had to have $500. And out of the blue, my Aunt Hannah in Toronto wrote me a letter, and in the letter she said, I was praying today, and for some reason, God said to send you a check. The check was for $505, and that was exactly my debt. And I was able to pay my bill, my bills that day. Of course, I was broke again, but you trust the Lord. But when we had moved to the States to pastor in, in Harpswell, it was at the height of the Vietnam War. And my boys were getting older. I could have stayed in the States, but I decided to uh, go back to Canada because they would have been drafted, I'm sure. We returned to Canada, to New Brunswick, and took up ministry there. I was pastoring Victoria Street Baptist Church in St. John. I had been invited to come out west to become the area minister, pastor to the pastors, and a friend of the churches. That's how they described the job. And that's quite different from being a pastor. It was probably one of the more difficult decisions of my life, and also the huge move across the country. That was no easy decision to make. We were leaving all kinds of people behind, all kinds of friends. Finally, uh, it dawned on me that if I wanted to stay in St. John, it was God's will. If I wanted to go to British Columbia, it was still God's will. He was giving me a choice. And we came out here. I've never had any regrets, second thoughts. I was here in the West. I think that by nature, I'm a happy person. I get a lot of happiness if by something I'm doing or by the way I'm living makes them happy. That makes me happy. Lois has helped to make me happier. I've been very fortunate through the years of having a lot of good friends. And all those of you who are here tonight, you're my friends, uh, because every one of you sitting there uh, mean a great deal to Lois and to me. I'm at the other end of life, so I'm sure hoping that when I die, that I get to heaven. That's my hope. It's the blessed hope. I'm going to heaven.
Wow. <laughs> My dad was calling me all through that. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'll check afterwards. Anyway, would you stand? <clears throat> we've, we've remembered, we've celebrated uh, the life of Phil Collins. And I was going to say if he was standing here, but it's like he was just there. And... Um, he is with Jesus and has been, and uh, that's his wish for us and his blessing. And so I wish to give you a blessing right now. And afterwards, uh, friends and family, if you would like, we can gather out through the, uh, uh, through the lobby out to the left. There is the uh, uh, fellowship hall, and we're having a time of fellowship together, and it would be great to be able to visit there. And now may God bless you, keep you. May God grant light to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May God be revealed to you in mercy and give you peace. Amen. I'd like to ask the family.